0: When I was pastoring, I remember asking a friend of mine who was a counselor um, about what are the core issues that break down a person's life. Because I thought if he could give me a clue to that, it would help my preaching a little bit because I could preach into some of those core issues. And he had a little short list, but one of the things that really surprised me on his list was broken expectations. I wouldn't have expected him to put that on the list. Until he explained that people come into life with with these big expectations. And then life doesn't turn out like that. And you become disappointed. And then that disappointment matures into discouragement. And it gets really bad despair and bitterness and anger. And all those things that break a person's life down. So expectations are huge, and I'm not surprised then that God's Word has something to say about how to handle the whole issue of the expectations of life. I think we come into life with uh, a couple of uh, fundamental expectations. Uh, Number one is that we'll end up in a good place, like, you know, when life gets up and going... We'll end up in a good neighborhood, we'll end up in a good home, we'll end up with the right zip code, we'll end up in a good place, only to find out that life doesn't work out like that, and that we're suddenly stuck in a bad place. And you just think, how did I get stuck in a home like this? I've had all this student debt, and how did I get stuck in a job like this, making minimum wage like How did I get stuck in a body like this? It's too big. It's too small. It's so unhealthy. It's so painful. How did I I get stuck in a place like this? And then everything just starts to break down. Or the other fundamental expectation is that people are going to like you and love you and affirm you and cheer you on. (laughs) Especially given how charming you are. (laughs) Only to find out that not everybody likes you. Not everybody affirms you. And people are critical and people are judgmental and people are demanding. And How did I get stuck with people like this in my life? How did I get stuck with a roommate like this? How did I get stuck with parents like this? How, how did I get stuck with a boss like this? How did I... And the list goes on. So, what do you do... When life doesn't turn out the way you thought it would. Well, it's very interesting to me that um, the Apostle Paul um, found himself stuck in a really bad place with some really lame people. And I would have expected that Paul, being the big guy he was, uh, might think that God had like totally turned his back on him. But what I find interesting is that he's not disappointed or discouraged, or in despair, or angry or bitter? But actually, he's ecstatic. I'm going like, "How do you do that? Stuck in a bad place with bad people? And you're OK. So he tells us all about it in a personal testimony in Philippians chapter 1. I bet you brought your Bibles. That's one thing I love about this church, to hear the rattling of the pages of the Bible. For all us old-timers and the rest of us are all taking our iPhone to go to Philippians chapter 1. And his testimony begins in verse 12 and goes through... Verse 21, for our purposes this morning. All right, follow along as I read God's word. Verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me... All right, Sunday morning quiz. How many of you know what has happened to Paul? Where is he writing this from? All right, so he's in prison. So would anybody agree he's stuck in a bad place? Do so I have a witness on that? Come on, I can't carry this ball by myself this morning. You got to help me out with this. So he's stuck in a really bad place. And I would have given his expectation that, you know, God has personally stunned him on the road to Damascus, struck him blind, and then met him personally and And lifted him up and then taken him into the third heavens for a seminar. You know, all the other disciples were up to speed. And so he gets lifted up into the third. That would be a great thing. Like, don't argue with me. Have you been to the third heavens? That's it. (laughs) That was Paul's big line right there. (laughs) And then he's called to be the global apostle. Like, he has the whole world to evangelize. And in the broad scope of that great calling of God, now he is restricted into this tiny little space in prison. And I would expect that being stuck in that bad place, he would have a lot of thoughts about, how did you do this to me, God? What bait and switch was this? And, but keep reading. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So obviously he has this wonderful spin on his being in a bad place and he's not discouraged. He's ecstatic about this. Now, what I love is I couldn't wait to get to this part of the message. Turn to chapter 4 with me. When Paul signs off at the end of the letter, he makes makes this amazing statement. Philippians chapter 4, verse 21. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. Next line, especially those of Caesar's household. Some are like, how did the gospel... Get into Caesar's household. I mean, really, there's like brothers and sisters in Caesar's household? How does that happen? Then my mind goes back to chapter 1. And, you know, if I can create a scenario that I wouldn't be surprised is exactly what happened. Is that Paul is in prison in Rome. And according to him, all the imperial guard knows that he's there for Christ. So guess who's guarding him? Obviously, one of these imperial guard guys is guarding him. And I would imagine, how many of you think they guarded some pretty sleazy characters? You better believe it. So you know, just think of the guard going like, hey, what's a guy like you doing in a place like this? <laughs> and Paul goes, don't ask. I don't want to talk about this. I want to tell you about, like, God called me to be the global apostle. And now, now he's stuck me here. I don't want to talk about this. Now, maybe that's how I would have read. Maybe that's how you would have at least, your attitude might have been at that moment. But obviously not. You know, so think of Paul. And By the way, do you know why he was in prison in Rome? He was in prison for preaching the resurrection of Christ in the synagogues. And he was making a lot of trouble. So the Jews sent him on this trip to Rome through all the appeals. And now he's there. And Nero could at any moment come in and declare that he should be killed. So in that moment, he's there for preaching the resurrection of Christ. So if you think about the resurrection of Christ, who is guarding the tomb? The imperial guards of rome so how many of you think that was a big story to the imperial guard like they're their guard all of a sudden they're like struck like dead men they come to the angel the stone is rolled away the angel sitting on the stone how many of you think that might have gotten back to the imperial guard in rome i mean stories like that travel right So he says, I'm here for preaching the resurrection of Christ, and the guard goes, you're kidding me, I heard about that, tell me about that, and so Paul just opens up and tells him all about the resurrection of Christ, and what Christ means, and the guard accepts Christ, and he goes back on his break, and he says, hey you guys, you got to take my shift, I'm guarding this guy that knows everything about what happened at that tomb in Jerusalem, somebody else takes the shift, and then pretty soon like a servant girl accepts Christ, and So what I love about this, you know, just all the saints in Caesar's household greet you. What I love about this is that God had put him in a really bad place, on purpose, for a purpose, which leads me to ask you this question, did it ever cross your fallen little brain? (laughs) That God may have put you stuck in this bad place, on purpose, for a purpose. I mean, the Bible is littered with stories where God actually engineered people into bad places for a very special purpose. That nothing else could happen without his kind of person in that bad place. Think Joseph How many of you would agree he got stuck in a really bad place? How many of you know God sent him there to rescue the Messiah seed from starvation and famine so that you and I ultimately could sit here redeemed by the Savior, our friend Jesus Christ? Think of Jesus. How many of you would agree that he got stuck in a really bad place? You know, coming from the glories of heaven into this world. Where people would persecute and finally kill him. The king of glory hanging naked on a cross. Because God had him here on purpose for a very special purpose. So I guess I want to ask you again. Did it ever cross your mind in a little nicer way? That God may have you in that bad place on purpose. For a really special purpose. Well, if the place doesn't get you, then the people will. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, he writes, and most of the brothers, so you know he wrote this from the hood, right? <laughs> <laughs> And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So even as imprisonment has driven up the courage factor in other believers, well, if Paul can go to prison for this, wow, we'll have the same courage. Courage always begets courage. That's a second thing about him being in a bad place. But there are some bad people in this. Now, how many of you... Um, have been around disappointing people. Seriously, that's all? (laughs) So maybe you're among those who say, the more I get to know people, the more I love my dog. You know, like... (laughs) Because here we go. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry and not competitive spirits, but others from goodwill. The latter, those goodwill people, preach the gospel. He's speaking here, by the way, of the brothers in Rome, the Christians in Rome, who are a part of taking the gospel forward. So he's in prison, and some of them are delighted because he's the headliner, right? And they don't get any space. So some of them then take the gospel forward, some out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to uh, actually afflict me in my imprisonment. So here's his fellow believers, a group of them, who totally don't like Paul. And they're really glad he's in prison. Now they can get the headlines. Now they can be the big shots. And they're even hoping that their success in the gospel makes him feel worse in prison, afflicts him in prison. <laughs> so I'm going like, like, why don't they like Paul? I don't know, maybe because maybe he gets all the headlines and they don't. Maybe they're going like, Paul, Paul, Paul. That's all we ever hear about is Paul. You know, like, hey, I've written a couple letters. How come nobody's reading my letters in church? How come we always have to read Paul's letters in church? I don't know. But these are people that Paul is stuck with. And so he says, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry and competition, not sincerely thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? I'm praying that God would take them out. Actually, my Bible says, what then? And literally, the Greek is, so what? Who cares? Like, no problem. In every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I do rejoice. So he's stuck with bad people, and he's ecstatic about it. People that are competing with him in carrying out the gospel. You know, one thing I'm really glad about this morning is that uh, you know, this thing about Christians competing with each other and churches competing with each other ended after the first century. <laughs> All right, so maybe we ought to talk about this. Why is it that churches and Christians in the cause of Christ, Christian organizations, feel like we have to compete against each other? Uh, did it, why don't we remember that, that God has not called us to compete against each other, but to go arm in arm against the devil, against the gates of hell, that they would not prevail with us moving the gospel together, arm in arm? Why, why don't we get that? It's not an easy thing to get. I remember pastoring in one of the churches I pastored. Across the town, there was another church that kind of, we had the same doctrine, preached the same gospel, but they annoyed me. (laughs) Seriously. So that was back, none of you will remember this, but there used to be a time when churches would buy old school buses and have a bus ministry. Does anybody remember the bus ministries? Good, two of us. And they'd paint the bus and put the name of their church on the side of the bus. It was really kind of a cool idea. They'd drive through neighborhoods and pick kids up and bring them to church. What a cool thing. This particular church had a bus ministry, and on the side of their bus they said, Kokomo's fastest growing church. Do you think that bothered me? That bothered me. Because if they're the fastest growing church, they're the best church in town. Which meant that our church was... Not the best church in town. That bothered me. They were so aggressive. They'd pull their buses into our parking lots, and when parents let the kids out, they put the kids on their bus. Took Not really, <laughs> but almost that aggressive. And then I'll never forget the Easter Sunday when they decided to have the biggest attendance that they had ever break the attendance record. And so they thought, like, hey, the way we'll get kids to come is we'll have an Easter egg hunt on the front lawn. Do you think that bothered me? That bothered me. It bothered me, be, you know, when you get irritated, you get theologically really sharp. You know, I'm going like, <laughs> I'm going, oh, that's really nice. Now we've uh, taken the climax of redemptive history, the resurrection of Christ, and reduced it to little pink baskets and colored eggs under bushes, and (laughs) it bothered me, and they, they said, and it will be Friends Sunday, so everybody invite your friends to come, and whoever invites the most will get a prize, I'm going like, "Really? A prize for routine faithfulness?" Like It bothered me. What really bothered me, it was a small town. And some of their friends guess what? Went to our church. Well, I'll never forget that's back when we had Sunday night services. I'll never forget that before the Sunday evening service on that Easter Sunday. I'm at the drinking fountain getting some water, and I could just feel someone entering my zone. Have you ever just this, oh, and I looked up. This lady's making a beeline for me. I stood up, prior with water dripping down my chin. She said, "Pastor, yes." She said, "Do you know how?" And she named the church. "Do you know how many they had at their church this morning?" And I said, "No, I didn't hear." And this is a pretty small town, so it's pretty good statistics. She said, "They had 1,500 people at their church this morning." I said, "Really?" She said, "Yeah, and you know what?" It was Friends Sunday. So some of our people who should have been in our church this morning actually were in their church this morning. Now, I'm not normally this good. But I've been, I just, the Lord had been kind of, I've been just reading Philippians chapter 1. So when she finally settled down a little bit, I said, are you telling me that this morning 1,500 people heard the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our town? Well, that was a showstopper right there, you know. Like. <laughs> but that's where Paul was. Christ is preached. And I rejoice in that. Some of you may know that in Atlanta, there's a small, struggling church led by a pastor by the name of Andy Stanley. All right, so for those of you that don't know, it's a pretty big operation down there. And Andy tells this amazing story. This will sound like fiction to you. He tells the amazing story of having to move out into the suburbs because his church had grown so much and needing a lot of acreage and trying to find the right place with a lot of acreage. And he said, you know, the only place we could find was right down the street from a little vineyard church. He said, I felt a little awkward about that actually, but we really, If we were going to move and expand, it's the only choice we had. So we did. And we built this big church, parking lots, traffic jams on Sunday morning. He said, one day I walked into my office and there was a callback slip from the pastor of the Vineyard Church. He said, Joe, quite frankly, I didn't want to call him back. I knew I was going to get what for for <laughs> moving into his territory and the traffic jams, but I called him back. And the pastor said, Pastor Stanley, thank you so much for calling me back. I just wanted you to know that our little church has been praying for years that God would reach this part of Atlanta for him, for Christ. He said, Pastor Stanley, you are the answer to our prayers. Wow. He said, I noticed your parking lots are jammed. Ours isn't, you know, if your people want to use our parking lot, that would be fine and then he said, I know you're busy, but would you ever come and preach to our people? Sheep-stealing moment. (laughs) And I'm going, thank God that some one place there is a pastor and a flock who understands that the work of Christ is about all of us and that we rejoice when it goes forward. Amen? Amen. So then the question in this testimony of Paul gets, he has to come to some resolution. So how did he do this? Stuck in a bad place with really lame people and yet his spirits are high. And excited. How did he do that? Well, the secret unfolds as we continue to read. The end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my Okay, now wait just a minute. I know how we listen to sermons. I know how I listen to sermons. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out, right? Am I the only one here? It's like that. <laughs> so all I have to say, if you've been out, you've got to come in, all right? This is very important. This is the secret right here. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager, what? Expectation. That I'll be in a great place and everybody will affirm me and everybody will like me. No. My eager expectation that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul has one expectation in life. And that is that wherever he is or whoever he's with, he will use the opportunities to magnify Jesus Christ. What does it mean to magnify Christ? It means to make him large through our lives. That his love becomes large through how we live our lives. That his mercy and his grace and his justice, then his righteousness, that all the realities of Christ become magnified through my life, wherever I am, or whoever I am with, that Christ will be magnified. I'll tell you something about that expectation. I love about that expectation. It's one you can control. Broken expectations are usually something that we're victims of, what somebody has done to us. And it doesn't make any difference wherever you are, whoever you're with. You can choose in that moment to make Jesus large and to express the love and righteousness and mercy and grace of Jesus right into that moment. It's probably the only expectation you can totally control in your life. Jesus is in you. He desires to be expressed out of you for you to glorify him. When I was a kid, part of the many parts of my wasted youth is that uh, back then they used to sell tobacco in little red cans and the name of it was Prince Albert. So anybody remember Prince Albert tobacco in a can, right? So my friends and I would take great delight of calling local stores and saying, good morning, good morning. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? Oh, yes, we do. Let him out. Boom. Boom. So I've come all the way from Cornerstone this morning to tell you, do you have Jesus in your heart? (laughs) Let him out, exactly. You know, to magnify him. That's, by the way, exactly why he ends this text by saying, for me to live is to be in a really great place around really great people. No. For me to live is Christ. And to die, that will be gain. It's exactly what he means, that every day in every way I will be living Jesus and living it out in spite of my circumstances. One throbbing expectation. that Wherever I am, or whoever I'm with, I will seek to magnify Christ. It's not always easy. Way back to That church where the bus ministries were going was Kokomo, Indiana. And um, we have a little airport, had a little airport in Kokomo. We affectionately called uh, the Kokomo International Airport. (laughs) And I was asked, way back then I was asked to come up, isn't, isn't it interesting how cyclical life was, come up and preach at Grand Rapids Baptist College in a seminar on expository preaching. And so I called up the travel guy, and I said, hey, do we, can I get from Kokomo to Grand Rapids? He says, yep, there's a little commuter line, starts in Indianapolis, goes, stops in Kokomo, stops in South Bend, and ends up in Grand Rapids. And I said, I have to be at a conference at 11 o'clock in the morning, and can I, yep, he said, it lands in Grand Rapids at 10 o'clock. I said, perfect, book me on that. He says, now, as he's booking me, he says, hey, I got to tell you something, It's a little tiny aircraft, commuter plane, and it's not very... You know, radar's sophisticated, and if the weather's bad, sometimes they don't fly. So I'm the eternal optimist. You know, Marty says I've got to be somewhat pessimistic to balance out our marriage. And so I ah, thought no problem. So she, he signed me up. I get up that morning. I'm driving to the airport. I noticed that the cloud cover is a little low, but it didn't cross my mind. So I walked into the airport with my bags and my ticket. And at the Kokomo International Airport, the ticket taker... And the baggage guy and the air traffic controller are all the same person. <laughs> so I hand my t- ticket and bags to this guy, and he begins to process it. And he says to me, the weather's not real good today. I'm not sure we can get this plane down. So you just feel my insides going like this. I can, you know, like you ever just start to tighten up, like. And I, so I start telling him, "Hey, I'm speaking to thousand people at eleven o'clock this morning in Grand Rapids. I don't think they have a backup. You got to get me there. Just make sure." He says, "Oh." And then, before my very eyes, he morphed into the air traffic controller, <laughs> right on the spot. And he starts talking to the pilot. And the pilot I, I can hear the pilot saying, I'm not sure we can get, get in. And I'm going, tell the pilot he's got to get in, that I've got to get to Grand Rapids. And then I hear the plane getting louder and louder. And the wheels never break the clouds. And I hear it getting softer and softer. And I hear the pilot say, we'll give it one more try. And I'm, now I'm all over the air traffic control ticket taker baggage. I'm going, like, you tell he has got to get this down. I have got to get to Grand Rapids. <laughs> he says to me, People on that plane have to live. <laughs> I said, I don't care. You tell him to get that plane down. <laughs> And then, at the end, again, same drill. The engines get louder and louder. They get softer and softer. I hear the pilots say, we're on our way to South Bend. And I just, I, I, so then I lost it. Like, hey, wh- what am I going to do? He looks at me, and he says, you're a minister, aren't you? Oh, gee, like. <laughs> the ticket people had put Reverend Joseph M. Stoll on the ticket. And I sheepishly and somewhat ashamedly said, I am. He said, then God will take care of you. (laughs) So I picked up my bag, got the ticket, and I start walking. I remember that an attorney in, in the church where I pastored had a private plane and loved to fly and in retrospect, providentially, three weeks earlier, it said to me, Hey, Pastor, if you ever want to go anyplace, I'll be glad to fly you. So I'm on the phone, like, I wake the guy up, and I tell him my sad story. He said, I'll meet you at Hangar 9 in 20 minutes. And I picked up my bag starting start, and then I see this ticket taker baggage air traffic controller out of my peripheral vision. And I have to tell you how ashamed I felt. Because I missed an amazing opportunity to magnify Christ. I mean, think how different it would have been if I would have said to him, well, you know, I've been walking with Jesus for a lot of years and he kind of controls my life and um, if the plane doesn't come down, I'll see, I have no idea, but I'm in Jesus' hands. Get the plane down. Laughter. <laughs> Just think if I could have then gone back to him and said, Remember what I told you about, my life is in the Lord's hands, and I just want you to know how wonderfully he provides. But I missed that opportunity. I woke up that morning with one pressing expectation, and that was to get to Grand Rapids. How different it would have been if I would have woken up that morning with one pressing expectation that wherever I was or whoever I was with, I would seek to magnify Christ. Think about how different that would have been. And think about how different your life will be if you wake up every morning with the expectation that wherever you are today or whoever you're with, you will expect to magnify Christ. Think about that.